Coming up next, Real Israel Talk Radio, episode 97. For Jubilees, at least we can say that the moon doesn't seem to play a part. If you read the flood story properly, uh, this calendar of 364 days was revealed by God, and uh, it was the correct one, and it was the only way in which you could ensure that a sacred festival was celebrated on a day that God had marked as sacred for this kind of occasion. Shalom, I'm Avi Ben Mordechai, and this is Real Israel Talk Radio, episode 97. Today's show is part one of a multi-part series about the Dead Sea Scrolls. About 20 centuries ago, many hundreds of documents from a written library of scrolls were carefully placed into clay jars deposited for safekeeping into some of the western caves of Israel's Dead Sea region. The area is referred to as the Qumran. Between 1947 and 1956, the discovery of the scrolls has captured the attention of numerous academics, religious leaders, and biblical researchers, all emerging from many different walks of life. By the 1990s, the scrolls were deciphered, translated, and published. Consequently, they were made widely available for anyone with an interest in the study of these ancient documents. An analysis of the scrolls through the eyes of the many researchers and translators involved in the project will provide us with some unique insights into the spiritual and cultural issues of the day, set within the context of what is called the Jewish Second Temple Period. To help us with an excellent basic understanding of what the Dead Sea Scrolls are and why they are such an important discovery for all of us, you will be presented with an interview that I conducted with Dr. James C. Vonderkam, the John A. O'Brien Professor of Hebrew Scriptures at Notre Dame University. Professor Vonderkam originally received his doctorate from Harvard University. As a member of the editorial committee preparing the Dead Sea Scrolls for publication, he edited 13 volumes in the series Discoveries in the Judean Desert, abbreviated as DJD. In addition to publishing numerous essays in journals and books, his other published works include a commentary on the Book of Jubilees, studies in the Hebrew Bible and Second Temple literature, an introduction to early Judaism, the meaning of the Dead Sea Scrolls, high priests after the exile, the book of Enoch, and the Dead Sea Scrolls and the Bible. Now, if you will, please welcome Professor Dr. James C. Vonderkam to our program here on Real Israel Talk Radio. Professor Vonderkam, if you would please tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, I come from the Midwest in the U.S. Um, I grew up mostly in Michigan, went to college and theological seminary there. Mm -hmm. And I went to graduate school at Harvard University, mm -hmm. uh, getting my Ph.D. in 1976. Mm -hmm. Uh, from there, I went to North Carolina State University for my first teaching position. 
And I stayed there for 15 years uh, and went through all the ranks there from assistant professor to full professor. Uh, at that point, I was invited to join the faculty of the Department of Theology at the University of Notre Dame. Mm -hmm. And I spent the final 25 years of my teaching career there from 1991 to 2016, um, at which point I retired. My wife and I stayed in that area for a couple more years, but uh, we moved from South Bend, Indiana to Princeton, New Jersey, where we, we are now. Can you briefly just tell me what your connection is to uh, how you came to be involved with the Dead Sea Scrolls and with uh, Professor Emmanuel Tove and mm -hmm. some of the people that you've been involved with uh, there in that uh, study? I believe I first heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls when I was in college, and when I was in theological seminary, I did a little bit of work with a, a scroll of the Book of Samuel, but it wasn't until graduate school that I really had a good thorough introduction to them. So when I got to Harvard, uh, two of the professors I worked with the most, and in fact, who were both my dissertation uh, advisors, Frank Moore Cross and John Strugnell, were members of the team editing the Dead Sea Scrolls. And there I wrote a dissertation on the Book of Jubilees, which has been a great interest of mine. And fragments of its original text were, were found among the Dead Sea Scrolls. That was eventually published. So I was really deeply involved at that point in Scrolls' work. Just give me a, a short wrap on what these scrolls are, what they represent, just the significance of them. The scrolls are uh, a truly remarkable find. The scrolls are really, we should say, fragments or remains of what once were complete scrolls, were found uh, between 1947 and 1956 in 11 caves uh, along the northwest shore of the Dead Sea. And altogether, People estimate that the remains of over 900 manuscripts were stored in those caves. Now, this was quite a surprise to find written materials uh, in that part of the world, because this just had not happened before that. The scrolls contain our very earliest copies of books that are now in the Hebrew Bible or the Christian Old Testament, mm -hmm. perhaps 200 copies in all, that is all fragmentary copies, but copies of almost all of the books uh, in the Hebrew Bible. These are far and away the earliest witnesses to the text of those biblical books. Hmm. But about three quarters of the texts that were found uh, in those caves are uh, other kinds of literature. Some of it was literature written for uh, a group near these caves and had a, an unusual kind of community. So they wrote a number of texts for their own life, expressing their own beliefs, expressing their worship. Uh, they also had copies of books that uh, did not make it into the Bible, at least not the Hebrew Bible, the Book of Enoch, the Book of Jubilees, and others like that texts that uh, give the details of a, a religious calendar, many texts that give us very early examples of how biblical passages were interpreted, 
all kinds of texts that have greatly, greatly increased the amount of information we have about Judaism mm -hmm. in the last two centuries before this era and in the first century of our era. Mm. So it, it was a, a, a treasure to find these texts and to have this kind of information provided for us, information that we really did not have before. I've heard the term Judaisms, plural, in that time frame, as opposed to Judaism singular today. Would you say that that was probably true back then in the religious communities of Israel at the time? There is some justification for using the plural Judaisms, uh, as you indicated, and quite a number of people use language like that. Mm -hmm. um, the point is to communicate that uh, not all Jewish people at the time uh, agreed on everything, <laughs> as we might expect uh, for any group. Mm. But um, in, we know of several different groups in Judaism. You know, the Pharisees are famous ones, the Sadducees. Mm -hmm. There were other groups as well. So that when scholars use language like that, they mean to point to this kind of, of diversity. Mm. I suppose we could do the same for today, speak about different kinds of, of Jewish mm. groups. But it, it was, it's important to know that it was diverse uh, in the centuries we're talking about. And the groups argued and debated their issues. And some of those arguments we find in the Dead Sea Scrolls. Mm -hmm. I would like to go on and address the issue of the calendars, plural. What say you concerning all of these various calendars, as I have understood the term? The traditional Jewish calendar is, of course, a calendar that is a combination of lunar and solar information. What has been surprising to find is that in the Dead Sea Scrolls, there are a number of texts that deal with calendrical subjects and in them, we find a, a solar calendar, a calendar that uh, claims that the solar year lasts 364 days, exactly, not 365 and a quarter. Mm -hmm. Now, we knew about that calendar before the scrolls were found because it's also uh, presented in the first book of Enoch, uh, copies of which were found among the Dead Sea Scrolls has a section devoted to astronomy. If you get translations of the Book of Enoch today, it's chapters 72 to 82 in that book. In it, you'll read about a 364-day year, but also about a lunar calendar, 12 lunar months, that uh, would total 354 days, according to this Book of Enoch, because the months would alternate 29 mm -hmm. and 30 days. So 12 of those would give you 300. 54. So the Book of Enoch presents both of them. It doesn't say which purposes the one or the other serve. It just explains how long those years last and what are the courses that the sun and the moon take through a set of gates on the eastern and western horizons of, of the world. In the Book of Jubilees that I've mentioned a couple of times, this 364-day calendar is also presented in divine revelation, according to the book. And uh, it's related to the story of Noah's flood. The flood lasted one year. The interesting thing about th that calendar in the Book of Jubilees, it says the festivals are to be dated by this 364-day calendar 
And you're not supposed to use the moon in your calculation dates for celebrating festivals. Mm-hmm. Well, in the Dead Sea Scrolls, we find the 364-day year uh, presented, and festivals are always dated according to that calendar. But the scrolls also talk like the Book of Enoch did about 12 lunations totaling 354 days. I would like to go on to this question about this 364-day solar calendar. Can you comment, please, on the newly reconstructed calendrical scroll from Qumran in cryptic script? Um, well, both of these people, Yonatan Bendov and Ishpal Ratson, are uh, fine scholars of calendar matters. They both have a fine technical knowledge of that subject. So whatever they write about it is obviously very good. Mm -hmm. Uh, In this article that you refer to, they did reconstruct a scroll that had really not been published before, little fragments, uh, more than 60 of them. Uh, And as they say, written in a cryptic script, we have a a small set of texts among the Dead Sea Scrolls that are not written in the normal Hebrew book hand, but rather in, in a script that's meant to keep the text secret for some reason. But other texts like this had been deciphered before, so they could build on that work and read these fragments. Now, what they did is reconstructed a scroll. People have developed methods for doing this. Uh, The Dead Sea Scrolls, you know, we really should call them the Dead Sea Scroll itty-bitty bits is what I I think of. There there are many, many uh, thousands of little fragments. But these that have similar-looking handwriting and are written on the same material, uh, have been associated by these two scholars as representative fragments of of one scroll. And since it is a calendar text, it is rather formulaic, not completely, but rather formulaic. Mm -hmm. And uh, what dates can be read on it can be correlated with the 364-day calendar. Mm. And once you have that kind of information, you have a a better chance of locating fragments. But the fact that that this text is formulaic really helped in uh, presenting rather good arguments for where little tiny pieces belonged uh, in in the puzzle. The text that they came up with, in a sense, tells us what we knew, these things about the 364-day calendar. But it also um, seems to spend a little more attention than we're accustomed to seeing in a scroll on the change of seasons, uh, the last day of one season, the first day of the next one. That was certainly interesting to see what they came up with uh, mm-hmm. in that regard. Is there anything that they came up with that we absolutely just knew nothing about? And it was just like, wow, what did you just come up with? I mean, was there yeah. anything of that great surprise? No, I didn't think so. But it's nice to find uh, more testimony about it in reading their, their reconstruction about the, the changes of the season. Uh, in a way, they kind of assume, you know, the 364-day calendar and work from that. Also great is that they actually managed to uh, locate some fragments and make some sense out of these little mm-hmm. tiny pieces. When you speak about this idea of the changing of the seasons, this Hebrew term, uh, Chodesh, we have a definition for it in Israel. We have a definition around around the world that it technically it refers to new moon, as you'll see it in most translations. Did the Dead Sea Scrolls at all throw some 
light on that subject, so to speak. Um, does it yeah. give us that definition, or is there something different with this changing of the seasons idea? When it's used in the Bible, the, t- the tendency among translators today is to say new moon, even though that may be an assumption. Um, but the problem comes when you're not dealing with a calendar with a lunar side to it. When you deal with a solar calendar like the 364-day calendar, the first of a month is not, probably not going to be corresponding to coinciding with the sighting of the new moon. If we take the term Chodesh, Chodeshim, and we're interpreting that word in light of a calendar that did not have a lunar side to it, it wouldn't make any sense to call it a new moon, I suppose in the sense of a particular lunation. Right. But when you get to something like the scrolls, of course, mm-hmm. you can determine how the word is, is being used. Given the traditional Jewish calendar that we can trace in some detail in the rabbinic period, context like that, we can tell what it means. Uh, But I think when we go back earlier, uh, we ought to keep open the different possibilities since we we don't have enough calendar information from an earlier time. Certainly. I would like to uh, address this issue of this uh, calendrical dispute going on between Jerusalem and this community living out in the in the Qumran. There was a dispute, yes, no, and to what extent, how intense, how deep was it? Well, there was a, a disagreement. We can say that. One of the early publications on the Dead Sea Scrolls argued from one of the first scrolls to be found, uh, the interpretation of the prophecy of Habakkuk, that we had a hint in it that there was a calendar dispute between the group associated with scrolls and the authorities in Jerusalem, the priests in the temple, and so on. Hmm. Now, we have good reason for thinking there were plenty of disagreements between the scrolls group and the authorities at the temple in Jerusalem. We have pretty good evidence for that. Mm -hmm. But I think it is pretty clear that they also did not agree on what was the proper calendar to use. We have no reason for thinking that, let's say, in the the first century, before the Common Era, that there was a solar calendar in the Jerusalem Temple, a 364-day calendar. Commentary on the prophecy of Habakkuk talks about the wicked priest pursuing the teacher of righteousness. Hmm. One feature of the scrolls that's really maddening is that they don't use names of people. They Hmm. so like. Their early leader is the teacher of righteousness. That's nice. We know he's a good guy for them, but who he was, we, they don't tell us. Mm. But at any rate, the wicked priest, so he must be a bad guy, uh, he's usually thought to be the high priest in Jerusalem. This text says he pursued the teacher of righteousness on the teacher of righteousness day of atonement, Yom Kippur. If the wicked priest is really the high priest, and he's pursuing this enemy of his, the teacher of righteousness, on the latter's Day of Atonement. It sounds like they, they're not observing the Day of Atonement at the same time, on the same day. Hmm. Also, uh, the high priest was pretty busy at the temple on the Day of Atonement. You know, he had all those ceremonies to go through that we read about in Leviticus 16. And since the Day of Atonement is a uh, Sabbath of Sabbaths, there's no travel 
on that day. So how in the world could he have been pursuing an enemy on the Day of Atonement? It seemed like they were observing a Day of Atonement at different times, and that was a hint that there was a different calendar. Mm -hmm. Then when some scrolls were found that specifically mentioned this 364-day calendar, it became very likely that that, that was the, the issue. The teacher was observing the Day of Atonement according to that 364-day calendar. The wicked priest in Jerusalem was not. He was using a different calendar. You would say they were probably not friends. I would say they were probably not friends. <laughs> okay. yes. Could you please comment on uh, Genesis 1.14? It, it's an important question in my mind because in the Masoretic text, we do have the reference to sun and moon together as having some influence over the Moedim or the, the festivals as we understand the term. But yet in the book of Jubilees, uh, as you uh, know from your dissertation and studies, uh, it's not mentioned that way. Did somebody change something there? I mean, how did that get to be that way? It's an interesting uh, question, and it, it relates to other passages as well where we have either the moon or both the moon and the sun associated with uh, these Moedim. And I think it's fair to say that we do not have an explanation from these people about uh, how they came to the conclusion that you must date sacred festivals by the uh, solar calendar, the 364-day calendar. We, we do have some commentaries on Parts of the book of Psalms among the scrolls in Psalm 104, the sun and the moon are related to Moedim there, if, if that refers to festivals in that passage. But at any rate, they came to the conclusion that it was only the, the sun that was to be the uh, heavenly body that gave us the proper times for the festivals, not the moon. This group was concerned that the surrounding nations uh, used lunar calendars or lunar solar calendars, and that they do refer to the festivals of the Goyim, the nations, and that people are not to go astray after those festivals. It just could be that the moon had attracted certain uh, associations in the minds of these people and that they thought it better to avoid using the the moon in calculations of dates. And the moon is more complicated to deal with in dating calendars and so on mm. than the, the solar year is. But as I said, they don't tell us what the reasons were. If this were happening today, you would have a, a whole plethora of people out there, you know, uh, saying, well, you know, shaking the finger, you, you have changed the written text. And God said, don't do that, but you did that. So how would you respond yeah. to something like that? Well, the, you mentioned the book of Jubilees, uh, mm -hmm. which is a retelling of Genesis in the first half of Exodus, mm -hmm. uh, written by um, a really smart writer writing in Hebrew, maybe in the middle of the second century before the Common Era. Mm -hmm. I think one of his purposes was to try to make sure that people did not misunderstand Genesis, hmm. that uh, they didn't draw the wrong conclusions from it. And as you mentioned, uh, when uh, Jubilees is recounting the creation story, when it gets to the fourth day here that we were talking about when the luminaries are created, 
uh, it does indicate that it is the sun which regulates uh, the dates, the the years, the Sabbaths, and, and uh, so on, uh, and does not mention the moon in that regard. It seems to me that you know the writer clearly would have known what the text said in the textual tradition that eventually found its way into the Masoretic text. He may have had that kind of idea that I have suggested, the association between lunar calendars and the surrounding nations, the Hellenistic nations mm-hmm. of, of that day. It's, it's a hypothesis, but I think it makes some sense. It wasn't really even put in stone, so to speak, until, what, two, three hundred years into the Common Era. Yeah, right. I am speaking with Notre Dame University's John A. O'Brien Professor of Hebrew Scripture, Dr. James C. Vunderkamp. We're talking about the Dead Sea Scrolls, and we'll continue discussing this matter after our break and return to hear more from our guest. I'm Avi ben Mordechai, and this is Real Israel Talk Radio. You're listening to Ancient Roads, Real Israel Talk Radio, Program 21, Episode 97. Welcome back to the podcast of Ancient Roads, Real Israel Talk Radio. Once again, here's your host, Avi ben Mordechai. Hello there, I'm Avi ben Mordechai. And once again, welcome to Real Israel Talk Radio. I'm speaking with Notre Dame University's John A. O'Brien Professor of Hebrew Scripture, Dr. James C. Vonderkam. We're discussing the Dead Sea Scrolls as they speak out concerning the views of the sons of light versus the sons of darkness. And we're learning about their calendar disputes between about 175 before the Common Era, or BCE, and 70 of the Common Era, also called CE. This is a period that ends with the Roman destruction of the Jerusalem Second Temple. So now let's continue hearing from Professor James C. Vonderkam on the Dead Sea Scrolls. The Masoretic text, that's an amazing phenomenon, mm-hmm. all of the information that is present in it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it was the kind of text that it has is not the only one that was in existence at the time we're talking about. We, we know about other textual traditions. They usually differ from each other only in minor ways, but every once in a while uh, they depart in, in larger, more important ways. So, as you said, the text of the Hebrew Bible, which is fixed uh, for us today, uh, was not always that way. There was a time when there was a diversity of of readings, uh, sort of like, you know, if you think of the situation uh, in the English language today, and English is not the only one, there are so many versions of the Bible in English Mm. put out by Jewish groups, Christian groups, uh, lots of versions. It's, It's... it's really kind of the same text, but worded very differently, quite differently in uh, all these different versions. But I think people don't get too bent out of shape about mm-hmm. the fact that we have all these different versions of the text. But to say, okay, we're going to leave out the moon. We're going to actually leave it out of whatever text they were using. And from your studies in the Book of Jubilees, that's a that's a text that predates Masoretic by a long, long time. 
that would lead me to believe that the Jubilees text is probably a, a more accurate rendering of what has been passed down from the ancients. Yeah, you could argue that way. I don't think it's convincing because if we had this reading uh, in Genesis 1.14 only in the Masoretic text, then you might have an argument. Hmm. But we have it also in the Septuagint, the Greek translation, the ancient Greek translation. Hmm. The translation of Genesis was made before the Book of Jubilees was written, Okay, the Greek translation of Genesis. And it, it has that reading in Genesis 1.14 like in the Masoretic text. Mm -hmm. So we have very early evidence for that reading. But I think of it this way, that true, Jubilees looks like it's left something out of the sacred text. But if you get to the early stories about Abram from Genesis 12, when he and his wife Sarai went to Egypt, and you know how Pharaoh took his wife, and we have this little issue about uh, misidentifying who she is, uh, sister and so on. Jubilees leaves that out too. And uh, I think it's not so much that it uh, didn't have it in its text. You know, it was clearly an, em an embarrassing incident with having Abraham not being very truthful about who his wife was. <laughs> Just left this out. And I think, you know, the point was not so much to say that's not in the text. I suspect everybody knew it was. But to uh, say, well, that's the, really the important point here. Uh, and Jubilees tells that story in its own way. Um, mm -hmm. I think the author didn't want anybody to say, well, it's okay to do if you're in a situation like that, just lie. <laughs> no, I don't think the author wanted anyone to conclude sure. that. Sure. Even though it seems like Abraham got away with it, he got rich and mm -hmm. uh, got his wife back. Now, Enoch, did they also have this uh, dispute at all going on between whether it's the sun and the moon or just? the solar component. I think that the relevant parts of the Book of Enoch are older than the Book of Jubilees, maybe by a century or a half century or something like that. Mm -hmm. But in its statements about calendars, we don't find evidence of the kind of dispute we have between the scrolls writers and the authorities in Jerusalem. We do have evidence of a little dispute in the Enoch literature, but it has to do with those people who think the year lasts 360 days and Enoch's teaching that they, it really lasts 364 days. But that's a different kind of dispute than the one we find in the scrolls mm -hmm. uh, about the, the correct calendar. Let's assume for a moment that, yes, okay, this is a strict 364-day solar calendar. And uh, let's assume that the Genesis uh, 1 text would be the more correct one in an assumption, then what in fact is the role of the moon and or the stars? Uh, what part are they playing in this whole story? For Jubilees, at least we can say that the moon doesn't seem to play a part. I, I do think um, that Jubilees is really talking about dating sacred festivals because it it is concerned about mixing up sacred times and secular times and you know, not getting the two mixed up. And if you follow this 364-day calendar, you, you won't mix them up like mm. you would if you followed a, a, a lunar one. My guess is that the author would not have you know, minded 
using, a, let's say, a lunar-solar arrangement for dating other kinds of events like King's Reigns or something like that. But I don't know that. That's just a mm. that's just an as, a, assumption about that. Mm. But I, I think he believed that if you read the flood story properly, uh, this calendar of 364 days was revealed by God, and uh, it was the correct one, and it was the only way in which you could ensure that a sacred festival was celebrated on a day that God had marked as sacred for this kind of occasion. If you went to another kind of calendar, you could get that all messed up. That's fair enough. It's a a plausible way to look at things. Uh, But then you have three texts and you have uh you have addressed them i believe in your book on the calendars and some of the other material that you've written over the years um psalm 104:19 on you know the moon and the modim uh psalm 81:3 about the full moon versus the new moon and the story of uh 1 samuel 20 verses 18 through 27 on jonathan and saul and david and that whole situation there um do you have any comments i again don't really know how these authors like the author of jubilees would take these passages i suspect they knew them well but in the case of the psalms passages the word uh, moed moedim could have less specific meanings than sacred festivals you know, it is used uh, in leviticus 23 and so on numbers 28 29 mm-hmm. for sacred festivals, but it can also mark particular times for something, you know, not necessarily a festival. It's not impossible that um, the author of Jubilees would have understood those psalm passages in that sense. The, um, the one about David and Jonathan is, is interesting because Jonathan knows that the particular meal that they're going to have celebrate this Chodesh he knows when it's going to take place. It's going to take place the next day. Hmm. Does that indicate that when he's talking to David, he's it's the time of the invisibility of the moon, and that he knows the next day will be the sighting of the crescent? Mm-hmm. Or is, does the story assume that, well, you know in advance when the month begins? Uh, doesn't matter what the moon is doing at that particular time. You're talking about the lunation of the moon, yeah. whatever it's doing at the time would be perhaps uh, irrelevant. That's not the point. Right. Mm -hmm. So that you could schedule it just like we do today. Our months begin whenever the calendar calls for them to do so, no matter whether it's full moon, you know, three quarters moon or or whatever it is. Mm. I suppose you could read uh, 1 Samuel 20 in that sense. Is there some kind of of a dispute going on with the New Testament writers were they using a solar version of this? Were they using the lunar version? Were they doing a, a hybrid of the two? Do you have any clues from your research and your studies of the scrolls in that issue? For some time early in scroll scholarship, that was a, a much disputed question. As people who study the New Testament know, the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, present Jesus' Last Supper as a Passover meal. Whereas in the Gospel of John, Jesus' last meal with his disciples takes place the night before Passover. Mm -hmm. So, you know, given what a central event that is in the Gospels, uh, it's quite surprising that the synoptics on the one hand and John on the other would date this event 
to a different day in the week. Just seems like an odd thing that they would be doing this. Hmm. But when the scrolls were found, and scholars very early on figured there must be a calendar dispute going on here, and it was known from the book of Enoch and the book of Jubilees that there was this 364-day calendar and the dispute about it, it was surmised that perhaps the synoptic writers were following a lunar solar calendar that was followed at the temple in Jerusalem, whereas John was following the 364-day calendar. Can you please, um, for our audience, add an academic opinion on this idea of the Tkufa, where it came from? What is the significance of this? Did we know anything about this word before the scrolls were found, as opposed to after? This is the kind of thing I uh, want to address here. The uh, word tekufa is used uh, in the Bible, and it, it's used for the change from something, the turn from something, like it could be the turn of a season or something like that, or the turn of the year. And it is used in time expressions. But in the scrolls, where we have it used more often, sometimes in the plural, as in that uh, scroll that we were talking about earlier, 42324D, that was reconstructed by uh, Ratzon and Bendov, there the change from one season to the other is called the Tikufa, and the text talks about the last day of one season the first day of the next one. So marking that out. And of course, in that particular calendar, this would happen at predictable times. 364-day calendar allows for four seasons of 91 days each. Mm -hmm. And in this particular system, the 13 weeks per season, you can predict when this change from one to the other is going to occur. An unusual feature of the book of Enoch, compared with the book of Jubilees in talking about the seasons, is they, they both talk about in each quarter of the year, in each season, the first month has 30 days, the second one 30, and the third one 31. Enoch talks about the last day of the, the season, 91st day, as the extra one, a special one, whereas Jubilees talks about the first day of the season, as the special one, the day of a season. Oh, interesting. Um, hmm. They have the same number of days in each season, but they just talk about the first one or the last one. Hmm. And it seems as in this text that uh, we were talking about, 4Q324D, both the last day and the first day of a season are mentioned as tekufa between hmm. one and the other. Is it a significant word? Is it a significant idea that is presented to us? I think it's significant in the sense that, you know, it's so regular. It can be predicted. It's marked. It's a sign of the way the calendar is set up into these four quarters, each exactly the same length. Obviously, mm -hmm. they thought it was important to mark that time. And uh, at least in the Book of Enoch, it's really important because it is saying that Contrary to our opponents who claim there are only 360 days in a year, they're actually 364. We need this extra day hmm. at the end of each season hmm. to make the time come out right, the way in which it's been revealed by God. From your uh, dissertation on the Book of Jubilees and your being able to read through the scrolls and take a look at these fragments carefully, is there any indication, Professor, that would indicate to us how they would understand when a day began 
and when it ended. When thinking about this 364-day calendar, it's associated with the, the sun and its annual circuit. You would think it would make sense to say that, well, if you accept that calendar, you probably think the day begins in the morning. Of course, we know that traditionally in, in Judaism, the day began somewhere around sunset, mm-hmm. so that the day goes from evening to evening. Mm-hmm. My looking at this particular subject, you know, you can cite passages uh, actually pointing one way or the other in, in the Bible. That seems to be the case also in, in the book of Jubilees. So I think that probably was not a disputed point between the authors of the scrolls and the authorities in Jerusalem. This whole calendrical thing is, it seemed like it was a real big deal to them back then. It really was. The group behind the scrolls was celebrating festivals. Let's say they were celebrating Passover on what they considered the 14th day of the first month. Mm-hmm. But the rest of Jewish people, following a different calendar, marked their uh, festival of Passover at a different time, which they regarded as the 14th day of the first month. That would uh, at least make your differences visible, and uh, you would be soon be standing out from other Jewish people in this very noticeable way. Mm-hmm. And I think that could contribute to tearing the social fabric. This would lead me then to uh, the scroll 4QMMT, uh, 4Q Mixat Maser Torah. Uh, would you care to comment on 4QMMT and to whom was it written? Why was it written? Maybe you have some ideas on that. It's a fascinating text that uh, marked a pretty important point in the, the study of the scrolls, I think. It is a text that uh, has some of the features of a letter, that somebody's sending this to somebody else. It seems like its author was among that group, and I think it's likely that this document was being sent to the authorities in Jerusalem at the temple. It starts off with a statement about 364-day calendar, and then it goes on to list something like 22 legal issues that were under discussion, and that the author or authors of this scroll disagreed with the recipients of the scrolls about the proper understanding of it. Mm. And many of them have to do with the temple, some of them uh, really quite technical ones. But it Mm. does seem to be a list of disputed issues between the sender and the recipient. What separated this group from their Jewish fellows was not really so much theological issues as legal ones. That is legal in the sense of what you find in Leviticus, laws about sacrifice, about offerings, about rituals in the temple, and and things of this sort. That these were really the sticking points that led to separation between these groups. And the text concludes with a section in which the author or authors calls on the recipients to accept the case that is being made in this document. And it seems as though it's a, it's a fairly uh, calm and peaceful address to the opponents. Hmm. It's not a text in which they uh, call their opponents all sorts of names and say nasty things about they're going to be destroyed or things like that. It almost seems as if the, the writer or writers has some hope that uh, <laughs> the other side will come around. That's why some people think that this text was probably written at an early time that mm-hmm. led this group to to separate. But anyway, it, it's a pretty mm-hmm. fascinating document. Concerning your years and years of studies, 
in the scrolls. What exactly is it that drew you to do your dissertation on Jubilees? What was in that document? You obviously have something that was just driving you on that. What was that? Why? I was drawn especially to the book of Jubilees. I thought this was really interesting book. And I think the feature of it that caught my attention is that this is a very, very early instance of someone carefully reading a scriptural text and interpreting it, a very early example of scriptural interpretation. And the closer you look, uh, the more fascinating it becomes. You see how the author recognized problems. He, he saw difficulties, or, or he, I should say he saw passages where someone might uh, draw the wrong conclusion, like looking at the marriage practices of the patriarchs. Uh, Some of them seem a little uh, shady, and uh, I think our author is quite aware of that, and he doesn't want people to say, well, Abraham could do it, why can't I? Mm. Or Jacob could do it, why Mm. can't I? Mm. He wanted to make sure that people didn't uh, draw those wrong kinds of conclusions. Mm -hmm. So I think the fact that it was such a careful reading of the text, sometimes we can see sort of obvious moves by the author, like leaving out the reference to the moon uh, in that part of the creation story. It was scriptural interpretation, and I like to think the author of Jubilees and the author of Parts of Enoch as uh, honored ancestors in the uh, process of interpreting the scriptures, interpreting the older scriptures. In a sense, I'm doing the same thing much, much later, and of course, much farther removed from uh, the time of the writing of those scriptural books. Hmm. I really uh, appreciate this uh, candid uh, discussion. Uh, You uh, gave us uh, some interesting insights into some things. Uh, I'm uh, particularly drawn to uh, the one comment that you made over several times, We're talking about a discussion of a difference of opinion between two different ways of measuring time. And uh, these people want to be different. They want to be not so much different. They want to do what God told them to do. Personally, I appreciate the years and the decades that you have dedicated to to the study of this area of uh, biblical research. Is there anything you want to direct our audience to as far as uh, obtaining some of the materials that you have written, which is no small feat to do what you've done? Any websites, any information? I know you can get your material pretty much on all the major online sources. I did write an introduction to the scrolls. It's called The Dead Sea Scrolls Today. It was written for a a wider audience. A book like it, but dealing with... uh, what we call early Judaism, the Judaism of this period. I wrote an introduction to that, by that very title, an introduction to early Judaism. A second edition of that is coming out uh, in January. Uh, January uh, 2022, I'm assuming. Yes, mm-hmm. 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 correct. If people want to get a relatively inexpensive translation of the book of Enoch, First Enoch and uh, Jubilees, George Nicholsberg and I published a translation of Enoch that would underlay our uh, Hermeneia commentary on Enoch as a separate little paperback uh, that Fortress Press has published. It's called the Hermeneia Translation of First Enoch. Hmm. And then I also did one for Jubilees that underlay my commentary on it. Again, the Hermeneia, H-E-R-M-E-N-E-I-A. It's a commentary series. The two introductions that I mentioned 
the Dead Sea Scrolls today and uh, an introduction to early Judaism were published by Erdman's in uh, Grand Rapids, Michigan. Sure, sure. We really are very grateful, all of us out here. Thank you. Okay, thank you. This is Real Israel Talk Radio, episode 97. And today's show is part one of a multi-part series about the Dead Sea Scrolls. Between 1947 and 1956, the discovery of many hundreds of 2,000-year-old written scrolls of Judaism, scrolls written by priests of ancient Judaism, has captured the attention of numerous academics, religious leaders, and biblical researchers coming from all walks of life. To help us unpack the calendar disputes as they were written about in the Dead Sea Scrolls, we heard some of the views of Harvard University's Dr. James C. Vonderkamp, who was also the John A. O'Brien Professor of Hebrew Scriptures at Notre Dame University. As a member of the editorial committee preparing the Dead Sea Scrolls for their publication, he edited 13 volumes in the series DJD, or The Discoveries in the Judean Desert. In addition to numerous essays published in journals and books, Professor Vonderkam's other works include Studies in the Hebrew Bible and Second Temple Literature, An Introduction to Early Judaism, High Priests After the Exile, and The Dead Sea Scrolls and the Bible. Next week, when we return to Real Israel Talk Radio, we'll hear more on this subject of the Dead Sea Scrolls from Professor Dr. Rachel Elior from the Hebrew University in Jerusalem. If you have any questions or comments about any of our programs, navigate over to our website at www.cominghome.co.il. I'm Avi Ben-Mordechai. And this is Real Israel Talk Radio.